crime and policing and the 2021 campaign. I'm Jarrett Murphy, the executive editor at CityLimits.org. My broadcast partner, Ben Max, is off tonight. Uh, we'll know that we are supposed to have Andrew Yang, the mayoral candidate, on today to talk about his campaign, his ideas. We are trying to speak to as many of the mayoral candidates as we can and talk to them at the greatest length we can manage. Um, but Mr. Yang himself also tested positive this week for COVID-19 and is experiencing mild symptoms, so decided not to come on the show because when you're feeling poorly, the last thing you want to do is uh, have Ben and I ask you questions. Uh, but we will have him back on, we promise, at some point in the near future. And while that is uh, sad, it gives us a chance to devote the show to a really interesting and important topic, something we've talked about before on Max and Murphy, and frankly, one that we could probably talk about in most mayoral campaign years, and that's the question of public safety. Uh, but of course, nowadays, thankfully, public safety and the question of the role of policing, uh, racism in policing, fairness of policing are all tied together. And we've recently had a lot of news in the city indicating that this is going to be an important topic in this campaign year, even though we have... COVID-19, even though we have the economic dislocation and fiscal problems that has caused. Mayor de Blasio in his State of the City speech last week featured public safety fairly prominently, some new ideas that have met with a mixed reception on that front. Uh, Merrill uh, Hopeful and City Comptroller Scott Stringer today released a five-point public safety plan of his own, uh, calling for far more sweeping changes in policing, both on the budgetary side and in terms of the role and training of police officers and how they are disciplined. And this week, a reminder of why this is such a fraught issue, the video footage of that incident involving Rochester police and that nine-year-old girl. All this playing against the landscape of rising crime in New York. York City, a 97% increase in shootings in 2020, murder uh, with a 40%, 44% increase last year. Um, while overall crime was down in the year, violent crime like that was up. And so far this year, we see something of a similar pattern in the first few weeks of 2021, crime down 20% overall, murders down 5%, but shooting incidents rising 16% this year. Obviously a small sample size, just a few weeks into 2021, but uh, definitely a concern, questions of what's driving it, arguments over whether police and criminal justice reforms are part of what's driven it. Uh, that's a controversial argument with little evidence to back it up. Uh, but something that almost all candidates at all levels of government, city council, borough president, the citywide offices are talking about, and we'll talk about it today. We'll be talking first with Richard Aborn. He's the president of the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City, which is a nonprofit that focuses on public safety issues and policing. They released this week a major report on how to reshape policing nationally uh, to address all the concerns surrounding public safety and police fairness that have been swirling. And then we'll speak from 5.30 on to Casey Foster, who is coming to us uh, affiliated with the Communities United for Police Reform Action Fund and the Make the Road Action Fund, a veteran organizer and activist who is well-versed in these issues and some of the grassroots concerns about policing and about some of the reforms that have been proposed by candidates and that we're hoping to hear proposed by candidates. I've been told we have Richard Aborn on the line. Very happy to welcome him to Max and Murphy. He's the president of the Citizens Crime Commission. He's also a managing partner of the international law firm Constantine Cannon, a former head of handgun control. Mr. Aborn, welcome to Max and Murphy. With you, and thank you so much for focusing on this really important topic. 
thank you. For those who are uninitiated and those radio hosts who need a reminder, tell us about the Citizens Crime Commission. What is it? Sure. So we've actually been around since Teddy Roosevelt was the first commissioner of the NYPD. And our mandate is to develop innovative ideas to reduce the most extreme extreme forms of violence in New York. So we come to this issue from a prevention standpoint, thinking about what is being done on any given topic. And I can tell you the topics. And then we develop new ideas to augment what's being done. So we work on uh, high-risk gangs. We work on violent gangs. We work on gun trafficking. We work on work with folks who carry guns. Uh, we do work around extremism. I mean, the most serious kinds of violence that you see in New York. And then we do an enormous amount of work around policing issues, cross a former prosecutor, prosecution and the courts. And we try and build synergistic or interconnecting relationships between all of those bodies to try and drive crime down. And what's the relationship with the NYPD in terms of programming? I remember at least a few years ago, this might not still be the case, but that the Crime Commission was funding, I think, some of the officers who were placed overseas in a counterterrorism capacity. Is that is that true? Is that still the case? Um, that is still the case, but that was not the Crime Commission. That was the New York Police Foundation. Uh, we I'm don't, sorry, my we don't provide any. No, that's okay. We, that's often confused. We don't provide any funding uh, to the police department. We work closely with the police department. But to be honest, I'm also not above saying when things are bad. At the moment, things are not great. I think we have a real dual crisis on our hands. We've got sharply rising shootings and murder, and we've got a crisis of police legitimacy, both in New York and nationally that needs attention, needs immediate attention, and in our view, needs very broad, long-term attention. Let's talk about the first of those, if we could, and and then we'll get to the second. The rise in crime here in New York City, and I think your group has pointed out, as have others, that there's a rise around the country. What do you think is fueling it? So I think there are a variety of things, but I think that the, the most honest answer to that question is no one knows for sure. Um, it's always very hard to understand exactly what's driving something. A lot of people are saying it's COVID, but the truth is crime started rising in New York, for instance, well before the COVID crisis hit. Um, some people are saying it's the recession, or not the recession, but the bad economy. But the truth is we do not see rises in crime during recessionary periods. Because think about it, it's not in the nature of people who are working who, when they lose their job, to go out and start robbing or assaulting people. We do see stressor crimes, um, but we tend not to see violent crimes. So there have been a variety of things that have happened before COVID and after COVID, all of which are probably contributing to it. Um, We've had, ironically, some much-needed bail reform and reform around enforcement. But unfortunately, while the reforms were very much needed and we supported them, in some ways they went too far and our narrative was too small. The narrative went out that we were stopping the issuance of bail, which wasn't true, that we were not enforcing laws across the board, which wasn't true, and that the courts and the DAs were shut down, which wasn't true. So a narrative went out that it was it was a moment when the risk the risk associated rather with committing crime was just not as high as it used to be. And like many aspects of life, we decide the risk of our conduct before we engage in it. 
So we're having a real issue around narratives right now. What is the, the belief of government towards the enforcement of crime? We have to correct that. Secondly, COVID for sure had an impact on this. We had a lot of people who spent a lot of time, in a sense, cooped up, locked up in apartments, uh, in their homes, and then and then the lockdown stopped, and people came out, but they didn't have jobs, they didn't have services, but unfortunately, there were a lot of guns floating around, uh, tempers flared, and we started having shootings. The sad thing is now we're in a cycle of shootings because a lot of the shootings have been gang-related, and unfortunately, one gang shooting fuels another gang shooting because a lot of gang shootings are retribution for other shootings. So we're in that that terrible cycle. Um, And then we had a a terrible crisis at the national level. Uh, Government under the Trump administration was very unstable, sending an unstable message to communities, particularly communities in need. And the Trump administration said essentially the heck with cities. Uh, Cities were not going to be part of the veil of protection of the federal government. And that had a destabilizing effect. So we've gone through a long period of destabilization on a number of fronts uh, that we need to start correcting. And then, of course, and perhaps in many ways most importantly, we had the terrible crisis around police shootings, starting with the Floyd shooting and then, uh, you know, the number of other shootings that took place. So now we have this very serious crisis of police legitimacy for lots of understandable reasons. At the same moment, we in a sense need cops more now than ever because of the rise in shootings. And we see some government bodies engaging in the activation of this defund the police movement, which I think is really quite misguided, but also starting to propose reforms. And a lot of the reforms uh, deal with discipline and oversight, and that's fine. We need some of that. But in our view, the reforms don't go nearly far enough. You have been involved in efforts to reduce violence for a long time. So talk about, you mentioned that a lot of the shootings in the city now, and perhaps elsewhere as well, are driven by gangs. Is is this a different um, dynamic than existed, say, in the late 80s, early 90s in New York City, where, you know, there was discussion about the drug trade being the main driver of violence. Is, is this a different animal we're dealing with? I don't think it's dramatically different, although this is not around drugs. Um, but we have seen a great increase in the number of illegal guns in New York. And in my view, that's fueling a lot of that. Um, there's been a wholesale failure. I was involved in the gun control movement for years. Um, There's been a wholesale failure at the federal level to pass meaningful gun reform laws. And the the result has been guns are just flooding into New York. In fact, NYPD seized twice the number of guns last year that they had in the previous year. So we're seeing a lot more illegal guns and a lot more people carrying it. What's problematic about that is not only are those guns being used in shootings, but it literally becomes a domestic arms race. If one gang member knows another gang member is carrying a gun, that second gang member is going to carry a gun as well. And you can see it just keeps spinning out. And I'm hearing from people now who are beginning to carry guns who never in their life would have thought about doing it before. So we have we have failed to lose. We have failed to understand the dangers associated with carrying a gun, uh, an illegal gun. We're beginning to think it's this panacea of safety, and it's just the opposite. And that's why you're seeing so many shootings. Why do you think the defund the police movement is misguided? Because 
we, at the moment, we need, well, let, let me split this thought. It, there are certainly areas of policing where you could shift some of those responsibilities to other agencies. I don't want to say that that's not accurate. I think that is accurate. Those are just societal choices. But right now, the way the defund movement is going, we're taking cops off the streets. So, for instance, in New York, although now it's beginning to be corrected, during the height of the shooting crisis, we canceled two incoming classes of new police, which hurts the number of cops on the street. And more immediately, we reduce the amount of overtime, I think going into the summer, as I recall, that the cops use every single year in a very specific program to put more cops in the street at the very time when we know shootings are going to rise. And that was all done in response to the defund the movement uh, effort. So I think that was misguided. So I just, I wish when we did these things, we wouldn't do them in such a reactionary way, but rather sit down and carefully consider both what it is we're going to reduce and what the actual impact of that is going to be, rather than just quickly reacting to the political flavor of the moment. So talk about this plan that uh, CCC has released in the past few days. So we've we've put out a two-track plan. Um, The the first track would would immediately address some of the major issues of police legitimacy. In our view, if you distill down most of the complaints about the police departments, they revolve around inappropriately aggressive policing, which I understand, and also the role of race-based policing or implicit bias. How is the implicit bias of police officers impacting enforcement and the way they interact with individuals and arrest policy? So we have put out a plan which would immediately attack some of those issues. And that deals with things like, of course, confronting head-on the role of implicit bias, but also thinking much more carefully about recruitment and psychological screening. And now we know, uh, post-January 9th, that we've got to look out for white supremacists in our police agencies, this is nationally. We would also urge a much closer focus on frontline supervisors. That is um, sergeants and lieutenants. And I and I mention those two ranks because those are the people that interact with police officers on a day-to-day basis. They supervise those police officers and they engage in what's called modeling. They 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 become the role models for those police officers. So sergeants and lieutenants, in my view, have the biggest chance of impacting police behavior. So we've got to do a lot of work with sergeants and lieutenants. Um, I would do a lot of, we're recommending a lot of change around police discipline, but also early warning systems. Police discipline is a huge, a huge conversation, but it has to have certain attributes. It has to be fair, it has to be transparent, and it has to be speedy. The display system just takes too darn long right now. We have to greatly speed it up, much like we do in the courts around criminal cases. And we also should be taking advantage of emerging technologies that could create early warning systems so that we have a much better idea much earlier in a police officer's career of who's likely to be going down the wrong path, if you will, and is likely to engage in police misconduct versus those officers that aren't. There are actually algorithms now out there that can help us understand that, and we really should be taking advantage of that. We would also switch the metrics. Policing rises and falls around metrics. A very famous police thinker once said, inspect what you expect. 
meaning whatever it is you are inspecting is what the cops are going to do. So if we're measuring stops or arrests or summonses, that's what you're going to get. So we would recommend expanding the metrics so it measures things like resolving conflicts, working with the community, solving community problems, working more carefully with your entire unit. So the entire unit, whether it's a precinct or whatever it is, is more functional. So the metrics are a big piece of this. And then finally, we would recommend in the very short term uh, what we call reimagining ComSat. ComSat is an incredibly powerful tool in policing. And if we expanded ComSat to include some of these other attributes, these attributes that would denigrate aggressive policing, it could have a huge impact on how police conduct themselves. It's a big tutorial uh, aspect to ComSat. And for those who don't know, ComSat, ComSat is the stat tracking tool that was first uh, used in New York City under uh, then, I think, Transit Chief uh, Bratton that began to very specifically track what particular crimes were happening where and allowed targeted policing to to occur. And that's part of what is credited with beginning the city's uh, drop in crime in the 90s. Precisely. Sorry, yes. In fact, I should have defined it. Yes, exactly. It's an incredibly powerful tool. It's now replicated everywhere you go. In fact, I do this work all over the world, and I've actually come across ComSat processes in in the western part of India. I mean, so ComSat is well established as part of the thinking around policing. So, Let me ask you about the recruiting piece, because that's a really interesting one, because there's a chicken versus the egg issue there of, you know, how do you, how do you change the culture of the police department? Um, how do you recruit people who help you do that if you haven't, you know, created a culture that we welcome to them? How do you think you approach that of, of bringing in sort of a, a different type of cop? So, so by doing what the, the second big thing we were talking about, we think it's time to actually begin changing the culture of policing in the United States. Yes, we have a crisis of police legitimacy right now, but to be just really honest about this, we've been here before. We've been here four or five times in recent history, and we keep ending up doing the same things over and over again, tweaking the same sort of processes in policing uh, that every single time. We think now it's time to start thinking much bigger, much more creatively, and undertaking the very, very hard work, this would be hard to do, of transforming our police force Policing in the United States is a police force model and shifting to a police service model like it's done in other countries, um, but could be done in the United States. If you switch to a police service model, public safety is still the core of what you do. This is not social work or, some people have said, kumbaya policing. This is policing. This is going after crime and reducing crime. But it's done over the long term in a much different way. You do it in much closer contact with the community. You work much more closely with other governmental agencies to understand the drivers of crime and you begin interceding in those, you develop much dif- much different and much deeper relationships uh, with community members so that when tensions do rise, you have those contacts deep in the community to alleviate those tensions. You develop a, a real partnership with the community where the community actually comes into the table and participates in developing crime-fighting strategies. I would bring them into ComSat, frankly. I would help I would ask them about metrics. I would get the community really involved in thinking about policing and develop much more of a service model. 
policing at its best, public safety at its best, works when there is a close cooperation between police and community, when it's a shared responsibility. And policing really could be the hub of that. Now, this would require a lot of thinking. There's no doubt about this. And it would be hard to do. It would take deep commitment from a mayor, perhaps a new mayor in New York. But it would be a huge change. And that's how you would begin to recruit different kinds of people, to circle to your question. So rather than recruiting just people who are interested in enforcement, and we need that, we would also bring in people with mental health capabilities, with community organizing capabilities, with conflict resolution capabilities, with, um, with, with housing understanding, just a broad range of skills that could be brought to the table in thinking about crime reduction. The causality of crime is a very complicated matter. There are lots of things that go into why crime occurs. If we really want to have a more, shall we say, enlightened view of how to reduce crime, we have to think more broadly and give policing much greater tools than just a gun and enforcement. You give people a gun and enforcement, that's what they're going to do. But if you bring in other skills to the table, you can you can approach crime fighting with a much broader set of those skills. And you and that would occur over time. NYPD is doing some interesting experimenting around this. It's not exactly this model, but their new neighborhood policing model begins to get at some of this. And there's been some interesting work done out of the mayor's office around linking um, other city services to police departments. We think that kind of thinking should be put on steroids, frankly, and rolled out across the country and and start thinking even more broadly about what a police service would look like as opposed to a police force. I'm not going to tell you this is an easy change. I'm not. This is a hard change. But nothing worth achieving is ever easy. So you have just about a minute left with Richard Aborn, and I wanted to ask you about cops who are now, officers who are now on the force, because there are 35,000 of them, and those are going to be the people who will be the sergeants and lieutenants that are so important, at least for the next few years. There is a, a supposition in the city by some that part of the rise in crime might be chalked up not to cops being pulled back by by their leaders, but by police officers performing their duties less aggressively, kind of voting with their voting with their work effort effort against some of the reforms that they have felt um, that they disagree with, um, that they feel let down by, that they're not getting community support they need. Do you feel that that is? part of the picture that cops are kind of voluntarily pulling back and how do you kind of sell uh, police officers who are already on the force how do you sell them on reforms that mean possibly a very very different job from the one they signed up for um, we know that police are voting with their feet because of record numbers of retirements that are going on in the NYPD. We've never seen so many people, what it's called, putting in their papers. This is a very complicated conversation, but I'll say very quickly, there is no doubt in my mind that cops are under incredible assault. Everywhere you turn, they're being criticized by virtually everybody. Some of that is warranted, but not all of it. And we really better think about how much we want to alienate cops because no matter what we do, we're going to want them there when we dial 911, and we're going to want them there when we want to try and drive down shootings. So this is a big conversation. It's worth an entire show. But, yes, it's a real acute crisis in New York, and we better think carefully about the rhetoric we keep using. Richard Aborn is the president of the Citizens Crime Commission. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime.